Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to give a short preamble. I often get the critique that I don't get enough guests that disagree with me on my podcast, especially on the issues of race and racism, which is where my opinions have been the most controversial. The idea is that I'm creating a sort of echo chamber of people that mostly agree with me. Now, I can see how you might think this if you don't see what goes on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, I've invited countless of my critics onto this show, and the near-unanimous response is just a refusal to speak with me. On the identity politics left, there is an actual philosophy of not talking to or debating people like me. This is the same philosophy that leads undergrad and increasingly grad students to cancel and shout down invited speakers. So that is the main reason why you don't see more guests who disagree with me. It's not for lack of trying on my part. Some of you may remember that I wrote an open letter to Ibram X. Kendi asking him to have a public conversation where the entire sum raised would go to a charity of his choice, and he declined. Ever since then, people at his public speaking events have been asking him why he won't speak with me, which I think is great, and he has consistently responded that I, quote, misrepresent his work, without ever giving a single example, of course. In any event, that's the only public reach out I've done. But behind the scenes, there have been many private reach outs to pretty much everyone you would want me to reach out to. But the answer is almost always no. One extremely prominent anti-racist writer who I won't name for privacy's sake actually agreed to a debate and then dropped out once they learned that I was on the other side of it. So that's the attitude I've been dealing with on this topic for years. And that brings me to my guest today. Vincent Lloyd is a professor at Villanova University where he directed the Black Studies program, leads workshops on anti-racism and transformative justice, and has published books on anti-Black racism, including Black Dignity, The Struggle Against Domination. Now, Vincent is one of those rare guests with whom I have profound disagreements on the topic of race, but who's actually willing to have the conversation, which I'm very grateful for. Vincent came to my attention because of a stunning essay he wrote about his experience teaching a summer course on racism at the Telluride Association. He'll tell the full story in the podcast, but essentially, his class was destroyed from within by a single hyper-woke person. It's a crazy story, and I think it shocked him and forced him to reckon with the anti-dialogue, pro-intimidation component of the campus far left. In any event, Vincent and I begin by talking about this strange experience of having his class imploded, and then we move on to debate our substantive disagreements about racism, police violence, race versus class, whether prisons are necessary, and much more. So without further ado, Vincent Lloyd. Okay, Vincent, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. So I plan to talk about your uh, excellent and interesting, riveting and disturbing in some ways article uh, on your experiences teaching a seminar at Telluride and your, also your book, uh, Black Dignity. So we'll get to all that. But first, 
I just want to know a little bit about you. What is your background? How did you come to care about the issues, you know, the all the related issues, racism, racial inequality, philosophy, so forth? Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm a professor now at Villanova, where I directed the Black Studies program for a few years. I mainly teach in uh, religion, but also uh, philosophy. I started out thinking about some of these issues when I was uh, well, first an undergraduate uh, doing some campus labor organizing, working with janitors, dining hall workers, and trying to see uh, how we could get a, a living wage for, for all the folks working on campus. Uh, and then when I moved to Atlanta and uh, questions of race were uh, front and center, unavoidable. Uh, I started sort of uh, reimagining my own story and uh, imagining, you know, what it would mean to think deeply about questions of uh, being a Black American. So, when was that? Uh, when did you move to Atlanta? Two thousand eight. Okay, and you be, and, and before that, you spent some time in South Africa organizing, right? I did. Yes. So, what do you teach in religion? Yeah, so I, I do courses on uh, religion and race, religious ethics, uh, questions of what it means to to try and be a, a good Christian in uh, 2020, 2022, 2023. Um, interesting. Okay, so so let's talk about your article. First, can you just kind of frame what's happening? Because this the kind of thing that happened in your classroom where you were teaching um, a study on, I, I think, uh, a class on race and the limits of law, right? With a seminar of 17-year-old students that were made it into this very selective kind of summer program where they took college level courses, right? And uh, what started, you know, initially very promising, and you had done this once in the past, right, began to break down in in a very strange and um, unhappy way. So can you describe sort of what the course is, how you plan to teach it, how it had gone in the past, and then Tell me what happened. Sure. Yeah. So this was uh, a course offered through the Telluride Association, a program for uh, high achieving high school students who are on a trajectory to uh, elite university education. They spend six weeks together living together, but also taking a college level seminar. Uh, and where is it? Uh, so they have uh, locations both at uh, Ithaca, New York, at the Cornell campus and uh, Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan campus. And you were at Cornell, right? I, I was at Michigan. You were at uh, Michigan. Michigan. Okay. Um, so the, the course, the, the seminar was called Race Race and the Limits of Law in America. We were going to look at issues of immigration, indigeneity, prisons uh, in the U.S., mass incarceration, anti theories of anti-blackness, intersectionality, and, and other sort of questions of race that are, are swirling around uh, contemporary American culture. And the, as you say, the, the course was a seminar. So you know, what, what a seminar means is we're, we're sitting around uh, a big table. We're each sort of sharing what we notice about a text that we're reading, uh, questions that we have, concerns that we might have about the text, what it makes us think of, what our experiences uh, illuminate for us about, uh, about a text and the set of issues that it's speaking to, and playing off of each other, hearing one person talk and then you know, being inspired by them to say something else and say something else and, and dig deep into the text through this sort of uh, iterative process. Uh, and that, that's what happened in 2014 when I co-taught the, the same course at Cornell. And then in 2022 uh, at University of Michigan, it went quite quite differently, as you say. So in, in 2014, you mentioned that over the course of the several weeks, the kids became very close as as one hopes for. And even uh, you had them, didn't you have them at your apartment? And you had like, it was a very, you guys, you all, you guys all got very close and it was a very rewarding exchange. And we're talking about kids from different backgrounds, right? Exactly. Yeah. From uh, all over the U.S. as well as uh, abroad, there were three or four students from outside of the U.S. Okay. So what was the moment when it began to go wrong in 2022? 
So at the end of the uh, first week, the person who was sort of like a camp counselor, sort of like a teaching assistant, uh, came to uh, myself and the co-instructor and said, uh, the first week was on indigeneity. And this uh, teaching assistant, camp counselor uh, type person said, some of the students are frustrated that uh, we're not uh, talking enough about anti-Blackness. And I tried to uh, point out that the syllabus had several weeks on anti uh, issues related to anti-blackness on prisons intersectionality theories of anti-blackness etc uh, coming up but uh, there was this sort of insistence that uh, each week each day should be exclusively focused on uh, anti-blackness every issue should be routed through that framework uh, which you know I, I agree that anti-blackness is a hugely important theoretical framework to think about that's why we uh, spent a substantial amount of time in the wasn't wasn't it that you spent like four of the six weeks uh, yeah. on on anti-blackness and one week on anti or indigeneity. Yeah, and one week on anti-immigrant. And or, anti-immigrant. So your TA was was your teach TA channeling his or her own grievances or channeling the grievances of of someone else? So that was unclear. Uh, it was represented as channeling um, the grievances of the students, but. Uh, I imagine this person was quite, uh, had quite strong views themselves. Uh, and it also strikes me that when you have a group of a dozen, uh, 16, 17 year olds who are away from, away from home, away from their parents, living to, uh, some for the first time living together in a really intense experience, thinking that their chances of college depend on this, you know, this experience, uh, they're quite susceptible to, uh, influences from, from around them as well. So, so keep going with the story. What happens when you're confronted with this critique? And, and I guess for context, are you and so you're co-teaching this course? Are you and the co-teacher? Is it understood that you are in charge of the curriculum, or is that the structure of this? Yeah. So uh, the Telluride Association hired, contracted the, the two of us to teach a college-level seminar, and uh, that was uh, <clears throat> that was clear. It seemed like that that was clear. It was advertised to the students. This is a college-level seminar that you're going to be taking. That was the centerpiece of the summer summer experience. Uh, the Telluride Association had had been in some flux post 2020, post George Floyd. There had been pressure from Black Telluride alumni to transform the way that the program operated to center anti-Blackness. But the, the association is large and um, mainly run by young alumni who are often volunteers and have a whole variety of opinions and levels of investment. And it, doesn't it boast it boasts alumni that I imagine anti-racist progressive activists would be uncomfortable with, like Francis Fukuyama, who's a conservative, right? As well as and some uh, others. Yeah, Gayatri Spivak from the the other uh, the other side, uh, the sort of left uh, left side. So uh, the Telluride Association itself has been a place where left, right, and center have all met. Stacey Abrams, right, is also an alumna, as well as figures from the right. So that uh, that. So democratic exchange of ideas has been, you know, across viewpoints has been at the center of the, the Telluride philosophy for a long time. Which I think is very valuable. Okay, so you're, you're hit with the critique that every day should be on anti-Blackness rather than only two out of three days. What do you do at that point? Yeah, so we try to uh, communicate that we will be uh, approaching these issues soon. Uh, and, you know, if uh, the students have concerns, we're happy to talk, we're happy to uh, bring in, uh, you know, other voices. There are many opportunities in the structure of the course for students to uh, bring in readings that, that they do on their own to sort of share with the course, uh, to uh, sort of bring in an artwork or, you know, uh, an article or, or a current event that uh, they're they're finding interesting uh, to contribute, so that could be a way that they, they can sort of co-create the the class with us if there are issues that they feel are not being addressed. 
In the second week, we try to do a mock court. Uh, mock court is a common thing that one does in uh, law schools, but so sometimes in undergraduate classes as well, where you have uh, one group of students who's one team of lawyers, another group who's another team of lawyers. And this this also goes, goes wrong. Uh, some of the afterwards, the students uh, worry or complain that some of them are forced to represent a side that they don't believe in, that they think is unjust. Th this exercise was framed as one in which we're exploring the limits of law, how law mismatches with justice, and also providing opportunities for young folks to figure out, is this something you would want to be? Would you want to be a lawyer? Would you want to argue for a position that you might not not agree with? Uh, and you know, so the, one of these mock courts in the second week was around issues of immigration. Another was around issues of mass incarceration. Uh, and the, yeah, the students reacted poorly to that. Interesting. So as the as the class progresses, there was uh, one sort of leader, ringleader among the students who you who you call Keisha, which I assume is not her real name. And when did that, when did her, um, her sort of persuading her classmates that there was a larger problem with you in particular, when did that begin? Yeah, so th this who I give the pseudonym, this person who I give the pseudonym uh, Keisha to was uh, both uh, this camp counselor and teaching assistant. She was sort of in charge of, I see. Uh, in charge of the students' lives for- she, How old was she, was she? Was she the same age as the students? Uh, she was uh, college age. Okay. Um, so uh, she was in charge of their their lives for the sort of twenty three hours a day, uh, twenty one hours a day when they were not in uh, in the seminar, uh, in including when they ate, to when they uh, you know had free time, uh, and, and so on, when they could talk to their parents, uh, all of that. Uh, so there was a really um, she had a lot of power right, in yeah. in the lives of these uh, students, and had a very strong line around the need for each of us to confront anti blackness in the world and in our own lives, and to transform. Uh, and a really deep investment in sort of personal transformation. Again, seems very well motivated right? that there are all sorts of forms of racism around us, those that we notice and those that we don't, and that we need to continually be asking questions about the world around us and about ourselves. But it, it seems like there are ways to do that that are more productive and ways to do that that are less productive. And, and this this program was structured such that uh, when the students were not in our seminar, not in the seminar for the three hours a day every morning, you know, originally in 2014, they would do fun things. It was like summer camp in the afternoon, would go to a lake or uh, go have ice cream or, you know, um, uh, organize a picnic or something. By 2022, it was anti-racism workshop. It appeared almost every afternoon that uh, Keisha and was uh, leading. And it appeared that these were basically inculcating ideas that Keisha believed uh, in the minds and lives of the, the students rather than sort of uh, discussing them or having a kind of back and forth, uh, uh, open-ended seminar style discussion, which is what uh, I thought the program was mainly about. So when did it get to the point where the students essentially rebelled, right? When did it get to the point where the, cl the classroom was no longer functioning like a, like a seminar classroom? When and how? By the second and third week of this uh, program, the white students and, the, and a couple of the Asian and Asian American students were speaking less and less, contributing less to the seminar. Uh, and Why do you think that was? I think they were being told uh, in these anti-racism workshops in the afternoon that uh, they uh, needed to center the voices of their black uh, classmates which again is well-intentioned, but uh, also fits awkwardly in a, in a sort of seminar space where we're each uh, bringing our, our own experiences and interrogating those experiences, right? And, and allowing pressure to be put on them and then putting pressure on, on others. So by the second and third week, the participation was uh, shifting or skewing 
Uh, and then by the, the fourth week, uh, it, it did uh, come to a head uh, where somewhat ironically in the seminar, the students ostensibly represented by this Keisha figure interrupted the seminar and said, we want you to lecture to us about uh, anti-blackness rather than to have an open-ended seminar discussion. About a different topic or about anti-blackness? Yeah. So they, they wanted a, a lecture and they wanted each lecture to center anti-blackness and they wanted me to correct or reprimand people who were saying things, uh, you know, statements that were uh, not fitting within the theoretical framework, this anti-blackness framework that they were. So that's interesting to me because, I mean, given uh, the T.A. Keisha's worldview, it makes sense that she would want to focus on anti-blackness. That seems like it's at the core of her worldview. Why would she want to get rid of the seminar and just have you lecturing? Because if anything, that seems more of a, let's say, old school teacher talks to class, you know, not that's, that's hierarchical in some way, right? That seems a little bit at odds with the general vibe I'm getting. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's a, uh, an irony that we need to work through in our, in our current moment, right? Where there are uh, demands for radical democracy and egalitarianism that often also come with demands for uh, authority and sort of a hierarchy. Uh, and I, I think we were seeing, seeing that tension play out in this, in the seminar where I was, it was as if I had, you know, it, it was as if the only proper learning that could happen would be if I were imposing my my views on the on the group uh, and but I'm curious about that why how did she square that in her head what was the purpose of centering you rather than the student voices yeah so one one version of this and again I think there is some incoherence in the in the in the view one version of of this was that the black students who were part of the seminar were less well prepared on Nikisha's account than the other students. Uh, they weren't ready for a full open seminar discussion. And so the seminar discussion, the sort of open-ended democratic conversation would be one that would necessarily priv privilege the voices of the non-black non students only by simply conveying information, me conveying information to them. Could the black students get what they needed, which was uh, information to allow them to sort of rise up into uh, the kind of academic excellence that they wanted. If I were cynical, I would say kids didn't want to do the readings or didn't want to be called out or it'd be so obvious that they didn't do the readings because doing the readings is like can be hard and tedious sometimes. Yeah. And we, we did see a... a I know I, I didn't do all my readings <laughs> at Columbia. I can tell you that. Yeah. There was, there was certainly a decline in participation in uh, in both readings uh, and showing up on time and yeah. doing writing written assignments as well. By when, the, when you went to the lecture? Uh, yeah. We never we never uh, acceded to the full uh, full lecture thing. But uh, yeah, by the by the fourth week, only two or three students were turning in written assignments and more than half of them were not showing up on time. Did they fear the consequences of a bad grade at all? Or Yeah. So one of the, the things about this Telluride program is that there are no grades, right? It's just for the love of learning, uh, which, you know, uh, and there are sort of, uh, written evaluations, but the written evaluations are just sort of describing how the student participated in, in the class. Yeah. So it, it, I, on the one hand, there, there's something really lovely about that and aspirational about that to say, let's just talk together and you don't have to worry about, you know, all your whole high school career, you're focused on grades. And here we can, you know, uh, just think about issues that really matter and that could transform us uh, without worrying about grades. On the other hand, it seems like that, that can go wrong when it feels as if, when it's an excuse to avoid frustration, which is part of learning, part of intellectual engagement. Let's get to the end, end of the story here. So so you get confronted with this lecture request, and if I remember, you ended up sort of compromising 
finding some compromise structure and then you got to the point where you needed like mediation with the administration. How did it get there and describe that? Exactly. So uh, we invited the students over to uh, my house on, uh, in the, at the end of the fourth week of class to share a meal together as well as uh, discuss uh, one of the readings, Frank Wilderson's Afro-Pessimism. And uh, the students uh, represented by, uh, ostensibly represented by uh, this Keisha figure, I demanded a lecture, I talked for a little bit, then uh, we had a, a fairly productive discussion. I again reiterate, re reiterated that uh, I don't think lecture is the most productive way. Like we, uh, seminar is what I was contracted to do to, to facilitate a seminar. The, uh, this uh, made uh, the Keisha figure very upset. She said she's going to take the students and leave and not, not share the meal with us the next day after that, uh, that weekend. Uh, after uh, I'd reached out to the Telluride Association leadership, the students each read part of a statement, each uh, read a paragraph of a, of a joint statement, naming all of the uh, harms that they had suffered in the seminar over those four weeks, and at least implicitly demanded an apology and transformation uh, of, the, of the seminar. Uh, and what were those harms? Uh, yeah, so some of these uh, included things like using the word Negro to explain uh, what was happening in Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court case that uh, ended uh, legalized segregation in education, which, you know, there is some contest over language usage now, but it's something that we could have talked about, right? Something that uh, there could be a discussion of. They uh, said that my body language was uh, aggressive to the black students, apparently. I don't know what that could have been about. Uh, there were a couple of other things that students had misheard and interpreted as being sort of offensive in, in whatever ways they, they once misheard me referring to one student by another's name. I, I'm not a perfect teacher. I do make mistakes, but it seems like that there are all sorts of ways that one can have a, a dialogue about the mistakes that we're all making as humans uh, and move, move forward more constructively uh, rather than confrontationally. Like I'm scandalized by your body language in the past 15 minutes. I feel attacked. Um, no, but I mean, you seem you're, you're fairly, I mean, I, I don't see it. I struggle to see how someone could, unless you're somehow, you know, a tyrant behind closed doors, interpret your general vibe as, as aggressive or it's, it's, uh, that's a little bit shocking to me. I mean, it, it seems like, well, let me just ask you it this way. What accounts for the difference between the success of this program in 2014 and uh, 2022. Did you change? Did the character of the students change? Did the surrounding culture change? To what extent would you blame these variables? Yeah, I, I didn't change. I don't think the character of the students changed. Uh, I think the culture changed. I think the, the presence of this uh, particular charismatic figure who was serving as a teaching assistant changed. And I think the Telluride Association itself had mixed, mixed messages that it was communicating to, to the students and to the, the teaching assistant about the purpose of the program. Uh, in 2014, it was very clear that this is an academic seminar, a college-level seminar. You're, you're a high school student and you're going to get a taste of university life. Uh, and that's the centerpiece of the summer experience. In 2022, some of the messaging that students were, uh, or, and particularly the teaching assistant were receiving was that this is about a transformation to becoming an anti-racist uh, and the seminar is sort of one component of that, but not the, the centerpiece of that. So you went to the administration, they, you know, they had read this list of grievances against, among other things, your, your body language. What happens then? How does it resolve? Yeah, so I think this is a point where there was a real failure of leadership from the administration, which was quite frustrating to me. It's like the, We asked the Telluride Association to communicate to the students and the teaching assistant that the seminar is at the core of the summer experience and that 
I was contracted to teach a college level seminar. Uh, I'd done this before. The association hired me again, trusting that I would do this well. And the association did not want to intervene at all. Didn't want to communicate with the students. Didn't want to communicate with the uh, or didn't want to convey a message to the to the teaching assistant. In one sense, there's something admirable uh, admirable about their faith in democracy that's so strong that you know they're they're going to allow this democratic experiment to run, even if it even if it becomes a sort of catastrophe. And then next year they'll try something different. They'll try and improve. They'll learn learn the lessons. There is something admirable about that. But in this case, with 16 or 17-year-olds whose parents may not know what's going on, right, whose parents send them to this experience to get a college-level class, it does seem like there might be an added responsibility to, to create the kind of structure such that this sort of thing doesn't, doesn't happen. It's interesting. I had Mark Andreessen on this podcast recently, who is a, a big VC investor guy. And we were talking about organizational structures, organizations that operate. He uh, he runs his business like a very unapologetic hierarchy. There's a boss, my word, I guess there's two bosses in that case, and their word goes, and that's how the ship is steered, right? And if you have a problem with it, you don't have to be here. That's the attitude. And in his case, he feels that is essential to the success of the institution. And he said something that I thought was interesting and your case seems like a prime example of whether or not you agree with it as a general observation, which is when you try to get rid of hierarchy completely and have a flat structure, what you get is not democracy and kumbaya and a commune and a kibbutz. What you actually get is an unplanned hierarchy, which is to say someone comes along who is ambitious and fills the vacuum that has been left by the fact that there's no planned hierarchy. Does that, does that seem like a fair characterization of, of what happened in this case? Yes, I'm certainly sympathetic with that that, that view and you know, this Joe Freeman's wonderful article, "The Tyranny of Structurelessness." You know, <laughs> sort of fills this out uh, wonder, wonderfully and has influenced me as I've been thinking about sort of political organizing over the years. Uh, in this case, I, I mean, I, I think we're at a, a cultural moment where people are suspicious of authority, and with good reason. Right, the, there are authorities who've betrayed uh, our trust at uh, sort of local levels and at national levels. On the other hand, authority is also something that we live with all the time. Right, we trust the authority of a dentist, right? We don't want to make our own judgment about our teeth. We defer to someone else's judgment. So I, I think we, we have to find ways to navigate these questions of authority in, in complex ways and nuanced ways that allow for accountability, allow for deferring to others at times, but also, you know, uh, can persist in a commitment to democratic life together. So did the class make it to its conclusion? Uh, no. So after the after this list of uh, grievances was read at the start of the fifth week, uh, there were two weeks left. Uh, I told the Telluride Association can only persist in this if uh, you intervene. If the, the leadership of the association intervenes, uh, they would not intervene. Uh, so uh, I offered to meet with the students individually if they wanted to, to read any of the written work that they wanted to produce. Uh, none of them wanted to meet. None of them wanted, none of them sent in written work of the students who who remained there. Uh, and I understand that the this teaching is assistant, this Keisha figure, just uh, sort of took my place and lectured to them for the remaining two weeks. Interesting. There's a there's an old Louis C.K. joke where he says you can actually, uh, you can bring a plane down just by being on a plane and yelling down loud enough over and over again. People will panic and you will literally bring, the, they will land the plane, right? I mean, something about this has that character to me. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm very sorry that that seems like a emotionally difficult experience for for a professor to go through um how did you how did you fare through it all how did you feel through it all 
Yeah, so I think it, uh, I did much better than the the students who I, I'm sure were experiencing various forms of mental health crises during this uh, during this time. Uh, their whole world was uh, in this house that they they were living uh, in with uh, each other and with the, the, the this teaching assistant uh, figure for 24 hours a day. You know, I had a family. My partner was pregnant. Uh, pregnant. Uh, you know, my daughter was going to camp, musical theater camp. We were doing all sorts of normal things, enjoying the summer in Ann Arbor. Uh, so this could be just one one little bit of my my life uh, which could sort of compartmentalize uh, whereas the students were sort of fully immersed in this world so the world that the, the TA created seems to me cult-like in a few ways one is that everything is subsumed to one value namely anti-blackness there is no plurality of values and this is what most most cults are like right whatever the cult worships that is what 24 hours a day is devoted to. The second thing is that there is no value placed on disagreeing about values. Um, if you disagree, you are a traitor and a blasphemer and a heretic and an evil person. Um, and this is the, I mean, as a, as, a, as a religion professor, I'd be curious whether or not you agree with this, but I think this is substantially the culture that cults have created and fundamentalist religion of all kinds have created. And academia at its best is supposed to value diversity of thought and disagreement, constructive disagreement. And that's what I'm all about on, on this podcast and in general. And I found, you know, when I was at Columbia, there were your whole, this, this whole fiasco is like, it's not actually that surprising to me. Because though I've actually never seen something quite as bad as what happened in your seminar, I've, I've certainly seen, I mean, I, I was in one class, a philosophy class, it was called philosophy and feminism, when I was probably a sophomore at, at, at Columbia. And it was, uh, we were reading, you know, Foucault, we were reading Judith Butler, and it was probably reading some of the some of the same people that you were reading in your course. And the professor was very much a um, dogmatic, I would say, admirer of everyone we were reading, right? Like no one we were reading really was to be criticized. And that message was communicated. Now, I took many other classes at Columbia. Sometimes we read those same people, but the professor would signal, look, everyone we read this semester is up for criticism. If you think you found, you found some tension, some contradiction, some flaw, you know, speak your mind. This is the point. The professor in this one class, it was much more like Sunday school in that the point is not to ask why Deuteronomy condones slavery if it's a moral book. The point is not to ask why, you know, Leviticus says being gay is an abomination. The point isn't to like critically question what you're reading. The point is to learn the truth with a capital T and I know it and I'm going to tell it to you. So that's um, that, that style of teaching. One thing I noticed is that people would raise their hands way less in that class. Like people would not, people, people just would not participate. And I would go to that class and just be bored because there's a hundred people sitting in the seminar, all of whom have, may have interesting insights and every, every time she pauses for questions, no one says anything. Whereas in my other classes where we might read some of those same texts, people are participating. It's, it's vibrant. It's fun. People are disagreeing and so forth. And I think there is a, a, a definitely a strain in higher education that I've noticed when I was at Columbia and I also took classes at Barnard where the, the classrooms are basically run by 
people that are more activists than professors in the sense that they don't like uh, disagreement and it, it, it changes the whole character of, of the classroom. And I think it's a very b- big problem in, in, in higher education right now. I'm curious if that is something you have noticed or if you think I'm, I'm over, overselling this problem. Sure. And maybe to start by circling back to your original uh, remarks about uh, cults, I, I guess w- one point that I, I uh, haven't mentioned as, as yet here is that uh, two of the students from this, this seminar who had uh, heterodox views, who were not fully on board with this anti-blackness is framing everything, were eventually removed from the program. And by the fourth week, uh, it was only the only students who remained were students who were voicing an agreement with this, this framework. So were they removed by an outside force or by uh, it's a little bit unclear exactly the, what the, the breakup was. was mutual i think the students wanted to remain uh, my uh, understanding is that there uh, was a recommendation made to the telluride association leadership that they be removed and the telluride association leadership uh, acceded to that that recommendation yeah so that there is something further cult-like about that that kind of atmosphere only having those who are on the same page within the uh within the the community and that you know i i do think a bit about religion and cults and, and this sort of thing and uh i think uh in my academic work uh these these terms like fundamentalism and culture are often used polemically right to just describe the groups that one doesn't like but there there are also real structures right and and common denominators amongst amongst groups that are closed don't tolerate dissent and are sort of have a singular purpose and, and charismatic leader that are, I think, worth uh, reflecting on and worrying about. Uh, on the, the question of higher education today, after this piece came out and even before, you know, I, I've heard from many colleagues, particularly at liberal arts colleges, particularly in uh, some of the state university systems, that uh, they've experienced very similar things, sometimes a little bit worse, sometimes uh, not quite as bad. But you know, uh, as, as you're describing this sort of phenomenon, both in terms of the how the uh, instruction goes, that there's a sort of, um, singular point rather than an open open conversation, uh, but also strong-willed student, strong-willed charismatic students uh, pushing uh, the conversation in particular directions and, and uh, shutting off the, the faculty leader from uh, being able to run the seminar. It is uh, happening uh, over and over again in, in different institutions. I don't think it's at every institution. I teach at Villanova, which uh, I think we sometimes uh, only half-jokingly say we have the opposite problem because we have a lot of students who are coming from Catholic high schools who are used to deferring to authority, who come into Villanova and are you know, uh, just eager to uh, treat the instructor as an authority uh, authority figure, uh, and we have to get them to uh, sort of uh, block that instinct. So I, I think there is a lot of variation from institution to institution, institutional culture to institutional culture. Yeah, so there's... Um... Another aspect to this, I think, I think it's the writer Douglas Murray who has his quote about these sort of campus meltdowns that have become a, a trope in the news, you know, in the past, I would say eight to nine years. The surprising thing I think he said is, is not that the students would rebel or that young people would rebel throughout American history, at least throughout much of the 20th century, let's say. Nothing has been more normal than for a group of anywhere from 15 to 25-year-olds to get together and say, we're taking over, the system's messed up, et cetera, the 60s, right? The surprising thing is that the adults caved in, right? That the administration just let it happen. Uh, what do you think accounts for the fact that the administration didn't just say, look, you're in a seminar, you knew what you signed up for, you know, Vincent's in charge, I'm sorry, this is, you know. 
Yeah, so uh, part of this is probably a quirk of the Telluride Association that the, many of the, the leaders of the Telluride Association are alumni of, of these programs are really committed to this uh, radical democratic uh, ethos and believe that they're learning from the failures of, of that uh, ethos. And I should say, you know, I, I think these student movements are also uh, really important, right? They're helping us, you know, us older folks uh, notice things that, that uh, we missed, right? Notice injustices that, that we missed when, when we were younger or, or and that we continue to miss today that uh, we need to transform how we teach. We need to transform how we engage with the world. Uh, and the, the challenge is just figuring out where are the spaces where we can do that effectively, right? So if the seminar is a space, the seminar has its, can do some things and cannot do other things. And it seems like uh, recognizing the autonomy of that kind of space is really important. There might be spaces, workshops where you're learning skills, where you just need a package of knowledge that's communicated from one, one person to the people in the workshop. If you're going to organize a, a union in your workplace, you need a, a you know pieces of information about how to do that effectively. You don't need a seminar on, on how to do that. So I, I think recognizing the, the distinct distinctness of different sorts of spaces in our political lives is also really important. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, your book, Black Dignity, and your your philosophy that you sort of sketch out there. I'll put my cards on the table. I'm fairly skeptical of a lot of the ways that you frame the issue of race and, and racism. So you will you should expect uh, probing and skeptical questions from me. But before we get to those, what uh, can you sketch out your motivation and general picture of of black dignity as a philosophy? What does that mean to you, and why is that important? Thanks. Yeah. So and the, maybe also talk about, you know, domination and the other major themes of the book. Sure. This book, Black Dignity, Black Dignity uh, was motivated by noticing that there are really important transformations in how we talk about race happening in the U.S. There are social movements that are, uh, again, sort of calling us to questions of justice that, that had been ignored before. Uh, and, you know, rightly uh, naming anti-Blackness as different from other forms of racism, different, different from other forms of cultural difference. So I wanted to, to think, you know, um, how can we uh, come up with a kind of theoretical or philosophical framework to understand these claims that's not, uh, you know, philosophical in the best sense, right? That's probing and dialectical and, and developing over time, uh, attentive to history, attentive to the nuances of different concepts and, and how they're different from each other. Like too much of the sort of, uh, discussion around anti-racism and anti-blackness is uh, what we found in the seminar is sort of uh, dogmatic and basically retweeting, right? Uh, claims that, that seem appealing. I find those claims appealing too, but I want to think with them. I want to argue with them. Uh, and so that that's uh, that was what motivated the book. Uh, and I, I found that dignity was, well, sometimes we think about these activist movements as just political, but I, I noticed that there's all this moral language around them, sometimes even spiritual or religious language around movements like Black Lives Matter. Uh, dignity is uh, in the first line of the Movement for Black Lives platform, an affirmation of dignity. Uh, so I wanted to really think about what does it mean to investigate the moral foundations of, of a social movement. So I guess there are many places we can go here. One thing I noticed uh, in your book is you, and you start out the you sort of start out the book talking about these cases of unarmed black Americans killed by the police or in the case of Trayvon Martin killed by a citizen, a neighborhood watch uh, vigilante justice guy, um, George Zimmerman. So Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, George Floyd, these, the, these people feature heavily in your sort of opening sketch of racism in America. And 
on my reading, you seem to take it as uh, their 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 deaths as prima facie evidence of racist of racism, right? In, at least in those cases, and perhaps a racist society. For each one of those, though, there there's there's analogous cases of white people killed unarmed, um, white children killed unarmed sometimes, right? And I could I could name them, um, you know, if you if you want. And there's dozens of those each year. So why, how do you explain those? Why do you view, in view of the fact that those same kinds of atrocities happen to unarmed white people, why do you seem, why does it seem that you see those as prima facie evidence of racism? Right. So I I think uh, you're raising an important point that if you zoom in on uh, just one uh, one incident, you can tell you can raise all sorts of concerns about that that incident. And, you know, whether uh, one framework is the best one for for understanding that is racism, the best framework for understanding this this particular incident. But when you have a tapestry of of incidents of police violence, of uh, microaggression, of economic wealth inequality, of environmental racism, uh, of uh, all sorts of uh, of, you know, the disproportionate incarceration of, of black folks in the U.S. Right? Uh, you have this whole tapestry of uh, data points right? uh, in which it seems as if black folks are being disproportionately harmed. <laughs> How do we make sense of that? And, and my contention was that you know, following both the language of black justice movements and uh, black studies scholarship, the afterlives of slavery is really important to, to make sense of all of those data points together, uh, not just one particular one. If slavery required uh, shaping them, not just laws, but also cultural practices and habits and ways of feeling feeling and reasoning and, and uh, social structures and institutions, when you get rid of the laws that authorize slavery, all that other stuff continues. And I think we're seeing the effects of all that other stuff continuing in all of these different data points, including these uh, deaths uh, around police violence. So I want to press you on that, though, because I don't think we I'm not sure we have enough time to, you know, you mentioned maybe seven or eight different sectors, all of which could take up and have taken up, sh- you know, bookshelves. But I do want to pin you down on this on this one issue because it is it's how you open your book and you reference this at ma- at many points throughout the book so you know like in the case of just like in the case of George Floyd right what i saw when i saw the, i saw in the, the knee, on, knee on the neck for 8 minutes one of the most brutal videos and murders that that i i've seen in my lifetime I've also seen a, a knee on the upper back of Tony Timpa, who was a white guy killed in either 2016 or 2017 in Dallas, uh, while the the cops are making jokes about him waking up for school and they they kill the guy, right? And the cops were not punished, uh, at least certainly not for years. And the, the case, nobody knew about that case really, right? It, it, there was it was on video, but it just because the victim happened to be white, it didn't make uh, national. It didn't make the national culture. It wasn't on people's lips. So when I saw the murder of George Floyd, in my mind, I I knew that this kind of thing also happened to a white guy. So where was the evidence that the most likely or only cause of this was that the police would only do this to a black guy? Well, actually, there's a video of them doing it to a white guy a couple years ago. So my theory of it has to be sophisticated enough to take in both examples, which is not to say it wasn't racist. Um, as a motivation. Truthfully, none of us can mind read in that way. We can just make our best guess based on our overall worldview and our overall guesses. But again, I think this seems to me to be a pretty a, a fundamental problem because th- this is, we could talk about all those other sectors. This is really the one that people feel is 
unambiguously has to be racism, right? We can debate about disparities. We can debate about whatever. But this seems to be, I think it comes earlier in your book because it's, you know, it's the most emotionally compelling evidence. And it seems to me to not be the strongest kind of evidence for a racist society. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for raising this, which is a, a great one to, to dig into and to, to think about a great issue to, to dig into and to think about. I think we need to condemn police violence in all of its forms, <laughs> wherever it happens and to whom, whomever it happens and think about why, why does this police violence happen? What is the culture of machismo in police forces, a culture of violence that, that is bred in police forces that, that leads to these horrific uh, incidents? And where do police forces uh, come from, right? Uh, their history, police forces arise in the South to, uh, as a successor to slave patrols, to, to manage black populations in the South. In the North, police forces arise to manage the working class, right? The bosses and, and uh, big businessmen want uh, to keep their, their factory workers in line, and the police forces are, are a tool of that. And so if, if we're going to look at particular incidents uh, in the present, we have to think about that longer history of policing, uh, as well as that culture of policing that's bred now. Uh, and be really critical uh, critical of it. In terms of the intentions of a particular person, I agree, you know, the, the mind is a mystery, right? Uh, it's probably not the most useful to, to think about the particular intentions of, of one person at one time, but what these incidents allow is a broader conversation about how does, how is there a tapestry of problems that had been ignored, right? Uh, police violence, had been uh, largely ignored, and now we're having a conversation about it. Right? That's important. That conversation should expand and deepen and involve police violence against white folks and black folks in the history of policing, but it should also involve you know, these uh, broader stories about uh, anti-blackness uh, in all of its forms as well, including wealth disparities and, and so on. So I think, I think you and I have also different assessments of the overall value of the BLM movement. What I would say in my assessment is to give the BLM movement its due, I would agree with what you just said, that before 2013, the issue of police killing unarmed Americans was relatively not on the radar, I would say, right? I mean, there was Rodney King in the 90s, which was a beating, but there was like, it, it just was not in the national consciousness to the same degree. And not only that, police officers who did horrible things almost never got held to account before BLM. And you can just look, and that doesn't matter whether the victim was white, black, Hispanic, or Asian. Police officers just certainly almost never went to prison for even the, the worst of murders, but often didn't even get disciplined in a smaller way. BLM changed that, right? Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a good thing because those incentives constrain and influence police behavior. If a police knows that he can be sent to prison or at the very least be disciplined for a wrongful act, it holds him to account, right? And the influence of police unions to protect police officers has been like teachers unions, in my in my opinion, you know, outsized and to the to the detriment of the populations served in both cases. But the problems with BLM are are one that I think it fundamentally misdiagnoses American society. It says the I mean, if you I, I know you will recall, but for my audience, when BLM first really dropped. There was a huge Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter debate. And BLM was an actual movement. All Lives Matter was basically, it wasn't a movement. It was a slogan that was a, a reaction to the movement. And the reaction was, are you saying only Black Lives Matter? How come you aren't saying All Lives Matter? Don't All Lives Matter? Wouldn't you agree with that? And of course, the, the sophisticated retort from BLM was this. They would say, of course we think that All Lives Matter. The problem is that our society doesn't value black lives as much. So we are seeking to correct that 
imbalance, right? That's, that's why we're placing an emphasis on black lives. What's interesting to me about that diagnosis is that it doesn't reflect media coverage of police killings of unarmed people. So for example, I just listed, I could list you five more names of white people, you know, Daniel Shaver shot um, like like execution style. Uh, uh, what's his name? There's a Autumn Steele shot by a cop who's spooked by her German shepherd. Uh, there's a six-year-old kid who's, whose name I forget. It's, it's actually hard to keep these names in your head because no one is saying them. And yet it's a couple dozen white unarmed people get killed this way every year. And this, there's just silence in the media. What's interesting to me about that is it seems to cut exactly against BLM's argument that we don't care about black lives. Truth is the only time we care when police kill somebody is if the victim is black. So that's the first way in which I think BLM is just, it is um, a diagnosis of a society that has moved on from that level of racism. I think that level of racism was undoubtedly true in the past um, and in the living memory of older folks. But I think America has progressed beyond that level of racism. And you can see that in the media coverage, in what the media cares about. You can see people's values and what they care about. And then the second thing I would say is in the, the climate of promoting and apologizing for riots and violence that caused what Pew recorded was the single largest year-over-year increase in the homicide rate in American history in 2020, detrimental specifically to, to Black Americans in particular who like died at higher rates, even proportional to that, even relative to that increase. And the total silence about the Black business, Black-owned businesses, and just businesses in general destroyed and looted the total lack of empathy for the violence caused by the riots in 2020 is to me a shocking moral failure of the BLM movement. So that's what I would say. I give them props for putting the issue of police killing on the radar with the caveat that that's an issue that affects in terms of unarmed people kill, killed by the police, maybe less than 100 people a year. I, but I, I give very big demerits for encouraging and creating the environment of the riots, which led to excess thousands of homicide deaths, not to mention victims of crime, and the overall misdiagnosis of American society as uncaring about black lives when the evidence to me points in the opposite direction. Thanks. Yeah. So again, you're, you're touching on lots of uh, complex issues here around the, the crime rate and all sorts of different factors and different explanations that can be given uh, for the particular uh, issues uh, that we're that we're seeing in the last year. You know, on the on the frequency of police murders, you know, we might think of lynchings of, you know, a few generations ago where you know, there were not tens of thousands of lynchings, right? There were dozens, a few hundred uh, uh, lynchings. They included not only black folks, but also Jewish folks and uh, Asian, uh, uh, Asian American folks. Uh, but lynchings became a symbol of underlying anti-blackness, underlying, you know, uh, uh, cultural patterns and forms of violence that were legacies of slavery. And so, you know, anti-lynching bills right, uh, were uh, opportunities to uh, address and open conversations about those deeper legacies on Black Lives Matter more generally. Now, I think there's a tendency to think about Black Lives Matter as a kind of abstraction that has a platform and a set of beliefs, uh, and then people who are a member or not a member. Whereas, in fact, you know, I see Black Lives Matter as naming folks in communities who care about justice, right? Who feel like their concerns aren't being heard, who have you know, cousins who were incarcerated and didn't get a good lawyer, right? Folks who have, you know, uh, brothers or sisters who had bad encounters with the police and who are trying to find a place to speak out about those issues and finding in the slogans around Black Lives Matter, 
both the negative ones and also the positive ones, black love, right? Black magic, black excellence, right? Finding in those slogans ways to pursue pursue justice that is of existential concern uh, to them. Okay. So, I mean, so this equation with lynching or the uh, the move to lynching, I think that I think that really misunderstands the general character of the problem with police violence because, I mean, lynching, lynch mobs were extrajudicial, like intentional murders and tortures, often uh, just from citizens to, to black men that were alleged to have commit some often imagined crime, right? And, and it was you know, the town square gathering to watch you put a black guy in a tree. It's like, it's, that kind of thing is impossible to imagine in in America now. And the equation with a a police that, a policeman that gets a 911 call, often from a black person, that there is someone being threatening in public and it goes south, which is not to say this is all the examples. Some of them are murders, but many of them are examples where a policeman is being called to the scene of a crime Again, often the call is coming from a black victim of that alleged crime and gets into an altercation, which ends in them pulling the trigger. Um, Sometimes the trigger is pulled rightly. Sometimes it's pulled wrongly. And some people shouldn't even be cops. Some people um, go berserk and they have no business having a badge and they should be in prison. Others are, are cops that had to pull the trigger to protect either their life or the life of, of someone in the vicinity, s- such as the, the Micaiah Bryant case where you know she was on the backswing of what could have been a fatal stab and he chose to pull the trigger at that time and nevertheless received all kinds of criticism for it. To me, to, to make the move to explain our caring about that issue in terms of it being similar to lynching is, I think, to gloss over all the very important differences uh, that make those two things not analogous. Yeah, I think you're making a good point that these these are not the, the same thing, right? And there are, there are important differences. But my, my point here was that these are both things that are, you know, there may not be a huge number, if you're, you're looking at the data, huge number of police killings, not a huge number of lynchings, and yet they have a huge symbolic function, right? That they, I would they, agree with that. Yeah, make black folks feel scared, right? in various ways. And and that has real power, right? That affects, that shapes people's real lives. Sure. I mean, so in, in some sense, it's like a plane crash, which is, there could, there can be one every 10 years, but it will, people will still be afraid if they go up in that plane. But I also think the media plays a role in just totally miseducating and non-educating and not educating people at all about the true likelihood of them being a victim of such a uh, such a police encounter or police murder. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about in, in terms of unarmed Americans killed by the cop each year. We are talking about lightning strike levels of um, your likelihood to be this to be a victim of that, literally. Uh, and most people don't know that. Like most people don't know that who think that they're educated by you know, reading mainstream newspapers and such, you know, you know, you think you would know that if you're just like a casual reader of the New York Times, but that's not really going to appear there, actually, um, in, in my experience. Instead, what you'll what you'll see is like articles saying, I fear jogging while black, you know, presented as if that's a rational fear where I feel it should be presented as, okay, we can understand how you came there. We can understand these videos have symbolic resonance, but th- what the media should be doing is to say, similar to a plane crash, your odds of actually being a victim of this are extremely low. And you should understand that you can feel secure at this point as a black person 
You do not have to, don't be misled by the few news events that happen because the news is by definition the outlier. What makes the news is by definition what is not normal, right? Everyday interactions don't make the news because they're not interesting. And I think the media has completely abandoned its responsibility to tamp down on, uh, on black people's fears of being victims of racism. And I think that has had an, a psychological effect on black people because to live in fear is, is really no way to live, especially if those fears are not actually justified by your likelihood of being harmed, right? Like if it were actually true that you should fear, you know, every interaction with a cop, then I think it would be okay to feel that fear because your fear is in proportion to reality. But I think the fear, because the media seizes on these stories out of context of any kind of statistical proportion, I think it creates it creates fear and paranoia uh, of being a victim of racism that need not exist. Yeah. So I, this may be another another point where we where we differ a bit. It strikes me that you know a half century ago people were racist in public, right? You could tell the racist. They were they were saying, I'm a racist. I, I don't like black folks. Now, you still have racist uh, outcomes, right? You still have racist behavior. You still have disproportionate, you know, uh, anti-black fact, you know, facts that, that on all fronts, on all sorts of fronts, uh, but you don't have the people self-identifying, hey, I'm the racist. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think I would worry more about the paranoia and the fear and those sorts of emotions and existential concern coming from that dy- dynamic, right? That the racism still exists but it's it's submerged and so you don't know exactly where it is so it, it makes black folks you know live uh with anxiety rather than yeah the sort of media amplification so how do you distinguish between the belief that racism has actually declined like there are just far fewer racists today and the belief that racism has just gone subconscious it's there but they're afraid to say it now cuz those two worlds could look pretty similar Right. What kind of uh, in your view, what what evidence suggests that we are in world B rather than world A? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I I think that there can be a a lot of focus on identifying who are the racists and who has racist intentions. And, uh, you know, I I don't find that particularly uh, useful. Uh, You know, I I think it's more useful to look at the gaps in wealth or income, look at the incarceration numbers, uh, look at you know, the uh, experiences of police, not not just police uh, killings, but in, you know, have you had a negative encounter with a police officer in, in your life? Do you know someone in your family who's had a negative encounter with a police officer? Where are people uh, living, right? There are uh, all sorts of, you know, new dimensions of anti-Blackness. And New York Times said this thing about Black appraisers and Black developers you know, having all sorts of uh, troubles in, in their careers uh, just in the last couple of weeks. So it seems like there are all sorts of dimensions of uh, anti-Blackness uh, beyond the sort of police killings that where that, you know, the focus on police killings helpfully uh, pointed us to and opened up conversations about those. So let's talk about the disparities, because you've pointed to disparities a lot in this conversation. You know, I have coined the term disparity fallacy for the idea that a disparity between two groups is necessarily or probably or definitely caused, caused by racism. And uh, the reason I, I, I came to this belief is because we talk a lot about race in America today, as in white, black, Hispanic, Asian the categories that were solidified during the Carter administration for, in my view, fairly arbitrary reasons. But that's a whole separate conversation about the social construction of race and so forth. Anyway, we talk very little today about ethnicities, right? About 
black Americans descended from slavery as an ethnic group, as opposed to black Caribbeans, black Jamaicans, uh, black Trinidadians, black Ghanaians, black Nigerians. Similarly with quote unquote white people, we talk very little about the cultural and outcome differences between white Americans of Irish descent versus of French descent versus of German descent versus of Russian descent. And when you actually look into this, and I encourage anyone to, if you people don't have very much time to, you know, read books about the subject, but just go to Wikipedia and look up household income by ethnic group or personal income by ethnic group. You will get a list from one to a hundred with massive disparities between ethnic groups of the same race. You will find that whites of Russian descent earn way more money than whites of French descent. You will find blacks of Nigerian, you know, Nigerian Americans earning way more money than um, Haitian Americans. Huge disparities, which no one reasonably attributes to racism because we're talking about groups of the same race, groups who often can't even be distinguished by the races who would be being racist towards them. And yet these disparities persist very long. And each one of them, I think, has a unique story that is a difference of, uh, you know, an effect of all kinds of variables, such as occupations that ethnic groups can specialize in as a culture, um, all kinds of attributes, right? Like, and what my view is that disparity is actually the norm, not the exception. We think we think the disparity between some groups, two groups, like something has gone wrong um, necessarily, when in fact, disparity is actually the typical state of a multicultural society where cultural differences matter and yield to different outcomes and differential success in different sectors. And nobody views, for instance, the, 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 the large disparities between whites and Asians as inherently problematic. And, and yet all of that reasoning is suspended in the case of black-white differences, where it only has to be due to institutional racism or to the legacy of slavery. And none of the other causes of disparity, which seem quite powerful everywhere else in the world, magically they disappear for this for this one example. So I am so I'm skeptical of your gesture towards those disparities as again prima facie evidence of a racist anti-black society. Thanks yeah and I, I certainly agree that there are all sorts of cultural differences uh, and outcomes of various forms that that uh, accompany those cultural differences and uh, it it's, uh, can be quite interesting to 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 look at them. Uh, the claim that that comes out of black justice movements in in recent years and over the decades uh, is that there's something distinctive about anti-black racism that's different from all the, this this sort of wider world, wider terrain of of cultural difference and uh, if we think back to, you know, slavery itself, you know, I I think it makes it uh, plausible, right? What does it take to make it uh, acceptable to treat someone as an object rather than a person, to, to treat an enslaved person not as a human being, right, but as equivalent to a, a cow or, a, you know, a piece of machinery, right? It takes all sorts of work on oneself, right? So shaping how one thinks, shaping how one feels. It takes all sorts of institutions, political institutions, cultural institutions to make that, that possible. It's so counterintuitive, right, to treat a person another person as not a person. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that like realizing how much it takes to allow people to be so inhumane at that moment of slavery makes it plausible. And I think even likely that the anti-black outcomes that we're talking about, the anti-black differentials that we're talking about are different from this wider world of sort of cultural difference that, that you're alluding to. I would, it's not quite the claim you're making, but I would agree that anti-black racism is the 
the deepest kind of racism that has plagued America by far. So nothing I'm about to say is is denying that as, as a historical fact. Uh, but when you say, when you appeal to slavery, I think the history doesn't really support your model here because I think my guess is you will agree because this is like widely agreed, I think, in across the political spectrum of people who study race is that white supremacy didn't come before slavery. It came really after slavery as a justification for slavery. The first fact was that there were white and black indentured servants in Virginia, right? Indentured servants, which were treated very much like slaves, but they had a, a time limit. Um, many of them died, lived in brutal conditions. And over the course of the 17th century, for various reasons, black people, it, slavery became racialized for, for reasons of convenience and um, all, all kinds of reasons. But the the philosophy of white supremacy and the badge of inferiority associated with skin color was not the reason that they enslaved black people. It was the other way around. It was Black people, it, it was a convenient marker to mark eventually the difference between slave and free, even though it didn't start that way. And then they had to justify in America how it is we can preach freedom and simultaneously enslave so much of the population. And that's how the philosophy of white supremacy really became popular was as a, as a post hoc justification for the fact that there was this big population enslaved that was all of one race. So that's the first thing I would say in terms of it's not like the the affect of racism that caused white people to enslave black people. And the second piece of evidence for that, it's not like the affect that caused people to enslave others is just like slavery has been perpetrated by every group on people of its own race. You know, slaves were black tribes were enslaved in Africa by other tribes and then sold for rum and other goods, right? So those black tribes didn't require anti-blackness in order to enslave the tribe that they were warring against, like, you know, the Dahomey tribe that was depicted Rosalie in The Woman King, but was actually like one of the fiercest slaves of uh, tribes that profited the most off the slave trade. Slavery has been in China for thousands of years and was only outlawed in like the early 1900s. In Korea, Russian serfdom, the Slavs, um, Arabs enslaving millions, over like 14 million Africans over the course of a, 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 a thousand years. Like this is, as I would agree with your statement that slavery is like deeply counterintuitive to me and you and to modern people. Like the, the notion of treating someone that way is deeply counterintuitive and you have to do work to even put yourself in the mindset of someone capable of, of enslaving someone. But the fact is, for most of human history, for actually all of recorded human history until a couple hundred years ago, you find almost no arguments against slavery full stop, right? Not in the Bible, certainly, not in the Quran, not like there may be like hints of it in Buddhism, but not really. What you find is basically no one wanted their people to be enslaved, but no one had a problem with slavery as such until like the 1600s, 1700s when people started making arguments against slavery full stop. So I think I think like the whole world has become somewhat more progressive on that issue, which is a great thing. But it's act, it, I don't think it was counterintuitive to pre-modern people 
to 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 make war and to enslave and and so forth. It is important to appreciate that uh, injustices in general and slavery in particular has uh, had a long history and uh, exists in many many places. But we also need to appreciate the distinctiveness of the Middle Passage, right? The stripping of individuals of family ties, of language, of cultural heritage, of religious uh, religious tradition, transporting them over an ocean, right? In the in appalling conditions, and then making uh, you know what we get in that in that uh, case of the Middle Passage is something like domination and laboratory conditions, right? Master and slave stripped of all of the complications of the world where their only identity is that of enslaved, right? They're no longer part of a community. They're, there's no longer, there's a minimal sort of legal, if any, legal protection. And so, you know, I, I think uh, in other cases of slavery, right, there, there are more, uh, there, there is more complexity and cultural complications and uh, some some legal protection in this case of the Middle Passage. There's something really dramatic and, you know, focusing on and uh, appreciating this, this human problem of domination that we all have a will to dominate each other. But, you know, we can see that in its purest form in the Middle Passage because the, the identity of the enslaved uh, is purely that of enslaved, everything else stripped away that puts particular importance and force uh, in transatlantic slave, slave trade. Yeah. So there's a book called Slavery and Social Death by the Harvard sociologist um, Orlando Patterson. And it's basically a survey and a, a theoretical analysis of slavery, a kind of quasi-Marxist analysis of slavery worldwide, including uh, slavery in the Americas. And he says a few things in there that I think I think challenge the uniqueness of, of American slavery. Um, don't, not, not that it does not challenge the um, brutality, agrees with the brutality of, of American slavery, but also points to the brutality that we don't really like to study as much of, of slavery in other uh, civilizations, other countries, etc. And he says something in that book, which is there is no, there's many differences between the laws governing slaves in different, uh, in all the different examples I might have mentioned and more for, for the past 10,000 years, slavery on every inhabited continent. But there is no known society um, in which uh, the whip or something like it was not used on slaves. Because fundamentally, how do you force a laborer to work when they have no incentive to work, when they have stand to gain nothing from their work? They're not being paid. The only, you have no carrots to offer or you have very few. And the only thing you can offer is the stick metaphorically and, and literally. There were bones strewn across the Sahara Desert because of the slaves taken to, to the Muslim world since the early uh, conquests uh, in, in, in the 7th and 8th centuries. And I think there are just this untold suffering that we don't really look into or unpack in slave societies around the world, because naturally, as Americans, we are more interested in our own society. I think that's okay. I do think we should study American slavery more than we should study slavery in the rest of the world, because that's our country. But I do think I think we have taken it to an extreme where we um, we we want to believe that we were that this country was like especially cruel. And I don't think that I'm not sure that's actually justified by a global and historical survey of slavery. Yes. And I, I do think we can get, uh, I think, uh, investigating uh, slavery and its afterlives in lots of different contexts is, is important. And we can get distracted by the sort of political claims around goodness or badness of, of America. But what it strikes me just from a perspective of, uh, sort of ethics and the human condition is that, you know, and teaching at an Augustinian Catholic university, one of the things that uh, you know, St. Augustine is really into is thinking about the will to dominate, right? That every human has within uh, within him or her, right? This will to, to dominate others. And it's something that we all wrestle with. Uh, and it's something that we wrestle with at an individual level and at a collective level and at a national level and at an imperial level in the Roman Empire. And it's something that we can see 
in its clearest form in this this case of slavery, but it's something that you know, we we all need to be thinking about the manifestations of domination in, in anti-Blackness, but not limited to anti-Blackness, right? We also need to think about forms of economic domination, forms of patriarchy that, that have domination built, built into them, forms of homophobia that have domination built into them. So, I, I mean, I, I agree we shouldn't be sort of stuck on the fact of the Middle Passage, but we should use that to open up conversations about domination in our individual lives and, and collectively. In your book, you towards the beginning, you you sort of talk about how you're not going to engage with like Kant and how you generally, correct me if I'm wrong, avoid incorporating European philosophers in the European philosophical tradition into your conception of black dignity. Is, is that roughly correct? Right. So th- there are a couple of ways that we often think about dignity. One as sort of high status or nobility, right? The dignity of a bishop or the dignity of um, a duke or aristocrat. And then later in human history, uh, European history, we think of dignity as something that's universal. Each of us has some dignity inside of us, uh, uh, sort of democratic conception of, of dignity. Uh, and while these both are you know, important and useful, I think, and and still exist in in, con- in the way we we talk, and you know, have uh, helped make important advances in international human rights regimes and and others. There's another conception of dignity that I want to call our attention to. That's a dignity that comes up in justice movements, and particularly in Black justice movements. A dignity that that is manifest in struggle, right? Struggle against domination. So that that's what I want to focus on in the book. I perceive a potential tension in that, which is the following. Throughout your book, you you valorize people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King, who who I also both of whom I admire deeply, um, as some of the sort of intellectual and activist heroes in in the narrative. I know for a fact both of them were very much steeped in the Euro- European philosophical tradition, and Martin Luther King spoke in his in his famous essay, "My Pilgrimage to Nonviolence," of reading Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Mill, Locke, Rousseau. And he called them masters, right? Not in the slave connotation sense, but in the sense that they had mastered ideas and thinking, and he learned a great deal from them, and Marx as well. And so presumably you you admire these people very much, but you don't follow their lead in incorporating that tradition, that European Enlightenment tradition. Do you view that as a tension at all, or or is that reconciled? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Douglas and King here that, uh, and, and many others in the Black tradition. The Black intellectual tradition is one that is uh, both growing out of Black experience in the U.S., but also in dialogue with uh, European thought uh, of, of all sorts. Uh, and that's where its richness, where its richness comes from. And, you know, in, in uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, books about dignity from, from the European, uh, European perspectives. I wanted to think about what does it mean to approach this topic focused on, but not exclusively uh, engaging with Black sources. Uh, in the U.S. I noticed in your book some some gestures towards the idea that Martin Luther King was a radical. Uh, can you explain that? Yeah, so I, I think there are a lot of different ways to understand uh, King. Uh, and, you know, there, there's one story that I, uh, well, there are a couple of stories I don't agree with. One story uh, takes King to be basically a secular liberal. He just wants to make things gradually better. Nope, uh, I agree. I agree with you. He was not secular. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's amazing. You go to the Washington, D.C. Uh, monument to King. There's no talk about God, no talk about I think Jesus. secular, I mean, so I'm an atheist and I'm a secular person. So I think I kind of understand that mindset. And I think people sort of want Dr. King to be secular. Secular people do because it it makes more sense. They want to downplay the centrality of his Christianity to his message. But the truth is you have to read what he wrote. Like Christianity was one of I would say like maybe four major pillars of his thought. Yes. And I, I think that's what makes his thought 
radical, right? That, that there's a, a possibility that the world to come could be dramatically different from the world that we have, right? It's not just a matter of looking uh, around at a problem here, a problem there. What are the sort of poli- policy fixes we can come up with to, to address this or that? There might be really deep problems baked into our world. There might be, we might need a tragic sensibility, right? To, to appreciate the, the depths of the injustices in our world, uh, which comes along with, you know, a hope for uh, dramatic transformation, right? That we can, uh, if we are committed to struggling against injustice, the, the world could and has at different moments dramatically changed in ways that surprise us. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I think that that's some of the radicality of King there. Of course, on, on sort of first order policy issues, he also, uh, you know, on anti-imperialism, on capitalism, on sort of forms of racism throughout his career, not just at the end, but throughout his career, he says things that uh, today would be perceived as quite, quite far to the left. So here's my problem with Dr. King was a radical. So far as I can see it, Every Martin Luther King Day, this happens, right? People quote Martin Luther King's famous statements about common humanity. I look forward to the day when little little black boys and, uh, and little white girls, little white boys can hold hands, right? This shining moment where so many different kinds of people from America resonated with the same message and temporarily came together to strike down, you know, apartheid in the South. Right. And so, so there's these amazing statements of common humanity. And every Martin Luther King day, I read a slew of the same article, which says, don't you dare think that that's what Dr. King was all about. He was also about radical, um, aggressive protest. He was the implication, the subtext of this is Dr. King would really be about BLM philosophy and tactics today. So don't you reduce him to that sanitized version of himself that is palatable to white people, right? He was really a radical. And when you ask for evidence of him being a radical, there's a bait and switch that happens, which is people start talking about the Vietnam War and full employment policy, which he supported, and universal health care, which he supported. and Issues that are totally different from common humanity and the meaninglessness of race. And I feel like the, the topic has just been changed where you, you, one, you, you know, this hypothetical person has it attacked me for saying I'm misrepresenting King's beliefs about racial identity. He was really an end nonviolent protest. And then when I ask you for evidence, you're talking about the Vietnam War and you're talking about his Bernie Sanders type policy, which I agree. All of those were very radical at the time and some are still radical today, but it's not. There's a bait and switch there, which is like Dr. King was all about that. He was also all about that we are united and that race is a meaningless, ultimately meaningless trait that has no business dividing us for any reason. He was he really spoke with one voice on that issue throughout his um, throughout his life. And once the aims of the civil civil rights movement were achieved, the main legislative aims. Um, he largely pivoted to being more concerned about organizing around class than around race. And in his final book, his so-called radical phase, the second chapter is a sustained critique of the black power movement where he ends by recommending they change their name to power for poor people because class is the main, is the more important variable post 65 in his mind to organize around. So look, none of us know what Martin Luther King would say today. None of us can channel him. And I think it's valid to say, uh, I I hate when people um, ventriloquize the dead. Like, I I think it's absurd. But we know what he said in his life about the analog to BLM at that time, which was the Black Power Movement. So that's my problem with the King was a radical argument. 
Thanks. Yeah. So I, I think it, it is quite tricky, as you say, to, I mean, there's a general problem with ventriloquizing the dead, but then there's a more specific problem with King and that he was a great orator. He's a great rhetorician, but he speaks to different audiences in different ways. And he speaks to different audiences in different ways over time, right? Uh, depending on the context. And he's very responsive to what's happening in American politics at, at different different moments and you know what issues can get traction. But I, I think it is his theological vision that's important here to, to keep in mind, right? So th- this uh, image of the, the little white girls and little white boys holding hands and, uh, you know, all the children. Uh, living happily now is an es- eschatological vision, right? It's at the end of time. This is a thing that we're pursuing that we can dream up. And we have to think about, you know, what are the particular tactics that, that we can pursue right now in order to move toward that, that dream? Uh, and those tactics involve, as a prerequisite, understanding the, the ways in which anti-Black racism manifests in our society and addressing those. It also involves understanding the ways that class and economic inequality manifest in our, our society, the ways in which lack of access to healthcare and other issues are you know, causing injustices and, and organizing around those. But with this vision in mind of you know, a time to come, a land of milk and honey to which we can fire in this, on this eschatological horizon at the end of time rather than tomorrow or at a moment that we can map out from here to there. Okay, pivoting slightly, what is your critique of multiculturalism and can you sort of define that for people? Sure. Uh, so in the book, I, I suggest that you know, after the Black Power era that we were, were talking about, which followed the civil rights movement, uh, the uh, U.S. went uh, through perhaps half a century from the late 70s to uh, early 2000s of multiculturalism, which was a, a, a regime for understanding and managing racial and cultural difference, right, where we were to appreciate the specificity of different racial communities, different cultural communities, appreciate that each has their own struggles that we can stand in solidarity with them around the, their own particular problems and also their own tasty foods, their own colorful clothes, all, you know, all of these things that, that we can appreciate. And you know, ultimately we can... Uh, Everyone brings a meal to the potluck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I grew up with too. Yeah. yeah. My childhood. And, there, you know, there's something powerful about that, right? The sense that you know, we're we're a nation where all, all sorts of different people can, can get together, uh, can live together happily. And if only we fix a few problems around the edges, we'll achieve that vision. You know, I think that the justice movements uh, that have emerged uh, in the 20, 2010s, 2020s are naming the way that that vision misses huge problems of uh, injustice uh, around anti-Blackness, as well as around uh, indigeneity and other other issues that, you know, patriarchy right, that continue to this day and, you know, w- will not be solved by just imagining everyone can bring their, their, their own food to the to the potluck, but you know, require a deep analysis of history, a rigor, rigorous analysis of the, the concepts involved and involve struggle, right? Uh, involve organizing together with those neighbors and community members and family and friends against these, these forms of injustice. So what kind of concrete policies, if any, does that translate into? I mean, you're, you're not really... Um a policy maker or anything like that, but presumably you have some kind of concrete recommendations or broad gestures in, in a policy direction that you would like to see vis-a-vis multiculturalism, transforming society, et cetera? Yeah, I think we're at a, a really difficult moment in that there was one paradigm that we were used to, and uh, it's being we're, we're seeing that that paradigm got things wrong. It's not clear what the new paradigm is going to be. We're at a moment of experimentation. We're at a moment of trying out new new different ways of thinking about race. I think that's part of the the challenge in this Telluride experience we were talking about earlier, and that you know this moment of experimentation is also a vulnerable moment where, where, where things can go wrong. But Do you think it's an accident that the sort of woke critical race theory philosophy imploded a classroom? 
Do you think any philosophy with respect to race would have been equally likely to implode such a classroom? I.e., like the multicultural, taking the multicultural ethos, for instance, as a comparison case. Yeah, I think uh, the multicultural ethos would have led to black students not finding their voice and being disempowered. I think in, uh, you know, there, how come? Because there are indeed ways in which. Well, why would they not just bring their food to the potluck, so to speak? Yeah, because there, there are uh, habits that are so ingrained in how we live together that make blackness marked as poison, black, the, the black food that's brought to the pot, potluck marked as, as poisonous and something to avoid that, you know, you can't have a happy potluck if everyone's looking at that food and saying that, you know, that, that's tainted stuff. You don't want to try that over there. You know, it's maybe not quite that extreme in, in a seminar space, but there is something like that going on. And we need to find techniques to, to write that wrong. So I guess this may be my last question. I'm trying to search myself to see if I have any more Maybe two more questions. So what are your views on prison abolition? Um, I know this is something that you've, you've thought about. Uh, yeah, I don't think, uh, I think uh, the prison is a moral abomination. I think uh, uh, if the choice that we have today is releasing everyone who's incarcerated or keeping about 2 million people in cages, we should release everyone who's incarcerated. Everyone, including uh, murderers and psychopaths. Yeah, I think the the injustices that we're committing right now by keeping two, around two million people in cages is so gross, so uh, grotesque uh, that it needs to stop right now. And we can uh, communities are experimenting with ways to to deal with the the, the problems that, that you're alluding to there. But right now we see we have we're doing we're doing a horrendous evil, uh, and we need to stop it. Would that apply to prisons? worldwide or specifically to American prisons only? The prison, you know, keeping a person in a cage uh, is a problem, right? Keeping a person in a cage is something that should never happen, uh, whether that's in the U.S. or whether that's in, a, you know, a prison with a slightly thicker mattress in Norway. Or so it's a worldwide abolition. Right. I mean, the, the problem is a moral one. It's not a... Um, what do you think should happen when someone murders someone else and is caught? Yeah, I think uh, we're at a moment where there's all sorts of important experimentation happening with forms of transformative justice, of bringing together communities, bringing together those who've been harmed and uh, naming those harms and together collectively as a community, as family members, as loved ones, coming up with a, a path forward, exactly what those outcomes will look like. Now, I'm not sure, but I, I trust in the, the local grassroots communities uh, to, to find ways to, to uh, figure that out and to draw on the wisdom of ancestors and past practices uh, that existed before there were a prison and before the, the prison was a thing, before we kept people in cages in order to... Before there were prison, most murderers were like killed, the death death penalty or stoned to death. Look at the Bible. Look at look, what are the historical practices from our traditions about how to deal with murderers and rapists? The death penalty. Prison is actually, relatively speaking, relative to pre-modern people, actually progressive. Right. Am I wrong about that? Justice systems in years gone by are complicated. Sometimes there was uh, money exchanged in, in response for you know, a relative who was killed. There are all sorts of different things that, that were uh, done in the past. We don't, I don't think there, we, we, can't, we shouldn't be nostalgic, right? We shouldn't uh, say, you know, things were better before uh, 1800 or something like that. But we should be open to uh, learning from, you know, the, the wisdom of the past, but also particularly communities where, you know, people are dealing with uh, harm all the time. I think they're pretty black and poor communities in the U.S. where it's clear that the police in the criminal justice system is not going to make things better. The state is not going to make things better. I have to admit, I'm really unsatisfied by your answer to what do you do with a murderer? Because it seemed it gestures toward like vague community family meetings. What happens if the person murders? Again? Like, what do you do with someone that rapes a child? 
do you have a family meeting with them? I mean, that sounds insane to me. And I, I want to be charitable to your answer here. Right. And I, I think these are human beings are complicated creatures. If they're causing harm, we, we all have been harmed and we all harm others. And we need to appreciate the complexity of, of each of us, including those who are causing grotesque uh, harms. We also need to be able to keep our community safe, right? And sometimes that moves, means removing people from communities. Sometimes it, it means... But how do you do that I, I, with I, no I, prison? Where I, do you I, put I, them? I'm not a, not a policy person, but I, I can see what it means to keep someone in a cage. And I can see that that, that isn't helping something. Uh, that isn't the, the proper solution on a moral level. It's also not the proper solution in terms of uh, the person coming out of coming out of being held in a cage and now now they're supposed to be a, a good person. It's just, it doesn't seem like the transformation that the prison promises is actually happening. If you take someone away from their loving relationships. That I agree with. I mean, I agree. Our prison, the American prison system, and, and there are others that are probably as bad, does a piss poor job of rehabilitating people and isn't even oriented towards that purpose. Basically, people go to prison, they try to survive they learn, you know, they, they get buff so that people don't fuck with them. They learn to fight and survive and they try their very best to do that. And then they come out often more hardened psychologically than they did when they go in. And that's even in the best of cases, right? Even in the case where this person went in with a totally noble urge to recognize how they harm people, whatever, they often end up like, you know, I just had to survive in prison, right? And you you leave with that survival mindset, I think, which is which is very much a shame. Which I think is really about love, right? If you're not being loved, if you're away from the people who love you, if you're if there's a wall between you and those who care for you, it make it, it's really hard to see how you can come out a loving person to those around you. Yes. Yeah, people do. And I don't I just don't understand how you 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 seem to be operating in a picture of the world where there are no there are no people that just want to do bad things for no reason. Right. Like everyone's everyone's pathologies, everyone's, you know, the violent tendencies of a particular person have to be a product of like circumstances that can be changed or not being loved enough. And we we will have some effective way to reform people through conversation, which seems to me like wildly different from the real world, where in my view, like some significant some significant fraction of prisoners fit that description, where like the right therapy mixed with the right the right lifestyle changes and community coming around really. And this, this person was never a problem for the community again. I, I have no trouble believing that applies to some fraction of people in prison. I would never, I can put a number on it. Um, but there are no doubt, there's no doubt also a significant fraction of people that actually enjoy harming other people and have inherently violent tendencies or if not violent, then predatory, right? Like how do you explain the, like people that have had, had every advantage in life, um, loving parents, and yet go out and commit all kinds of crimes. It need not even be violent crimes. It could be like fraud, right? Like white collar crime. How do you explain white collar criminals born with a silver spoon in their mouth and loving parents? I think I don't think that human nature is is inherently good, and that we're all waiting. We're all just waiting for reasons to be good. I think that's half the story. That's you know that's most people half the time. But the other half of the story is that um, we are, we have instincts to exploit. Um, almost everyone is capable of hurting others. And some people, I think, ha actually enjoy it. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't know if you watch any serial killer documentaries, but, 
you know, half the time they do find a story about how the father was abusive, but half the time they don't. Half the time it's like this kid had a great family and he came out the womb like torturing cats. And it's it's an anomaly and um, it's unfortunate. But the idea that you can just reform people without warehousing them, without removing them from the population of people that they want to exploit seems extraordinarily naive to me. Well, I, I know you, you have a, a strong position on media criticism, and I, I wonder if the same uh, kind of criticism might uh, apply to these serial killer documentaries and the role that they have in our, our cultural imagination, right? That if we focus on these few people, right, these few incidents that are that do have serious mental health problems, right, that that uh, may that we may not right now have the resources to treat, right? That, you know, they're, they're, if we focus on those, those people, we get distracted from the, from the real problem, right? From from an analysis of the complications of the world that reflect the the human condition in general, rather than this sort of anomalous group. Of the media likes to focus on. Uh, and to go back to, to my, my favorite uh, Saint, St. Augustine here, right? We do all have a, a will to dominate and a will toward the good, right? And these are competing. Uh, and, the, and the way that they, uh, you know, the will to dominate can be suppressed and the will toward the good can be allowed to, to, to grow uh, is when we have good role models, when we have loving communities that we live in, uh, when we have, uh, you know, forms of accountability and structures in, in which we live, and when we can uh, acknowledge the, the harms that, that we that we create and, you know, that have been done to us. And, you know, I, I think in the vast majority of cases, right, uh, you know, the state is not in a good role to be, you know, the one admit, saying, you're a bad person, you need to go away, you're a good person, you, you go away. It's the, the current, the, you know, the system we have is, you know, trusting the state, which everyone's suspicious of, but trusting the state to do this. Who else should be trusted? Who better? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think, we're, right, we're in an era where there are all sorts of experiments in transformative justice happening at the local level and grassroots communities where folks are saying, you know, that in this neighborhood, get get together and sort of bring bring those uh, who've been harmed. Who defines what's a community, though? This is a problem. I mean, in New York, I live in an apartment building. I know a couple of my neighbors. If I were to go berserk and murder someone, who who would count as the community authority to decide what is to be done with me? Right. Again, so the, these examples of sort of uh, going berserk out of the blue seem like they're in the, the sort of serial, uh, serial murder uh, documentary genre. of Forty uh... percent of people in prison are, are there for violent crimes. Those are obviously most of those are not murders, but we're talking about violence. That's not small. Right. When folks are. are... I, I assault somebody. Yeah, when folks are, are poor and don't have a lot of options, there's all sorts of stuff that, that happens in order to, to survive. Uh, and, you know, m- much of that is not ideal, right? But it's also uh, not uh, stuff that, you know, is going to be fixed with a state solution. And, you know, it may not be perfect, right? Uh, I agree that uh, there are questions around what counts as a community. There are questions around, you know, how do we create structures of accountability at the local level? But if we're going to choose between trusting the state and trusting, a, you know, a local, local the, something at the local grassroots, level, I want to, my, my faith is in the, in the local community, the grassroots level. I mean, it seems like a classic tyranny of structurelessness situation where you get rid of the, the bad guy, the state, which I agree is, is perpetuates all kinds of injustices. And then the person who takes command ends up being the most aggressive person in the room that everyone else is afraid of. And then there's just, the decisions are made by the local tyrant as opposed to the judge, you know, and, and the criminal justice system. And and the, the 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 thing about democracy is that at the very least i have some say in terms of who i vote for if i'm upset with the regime and the status quo but i have no say if it's just the most charismatic tough person in my community that ends up calling the shots i can't vote him or her necessarily out of office i have no 
social contract with this person, my level of power may just be proportional to sort of my sway in the community. I may be a nobody, but I am one person, one vote with, with, with respect to the state. And there's something to be said for that minimal as it is level of accountability relative to basically anarchy. Yeah, I agree. It can be a problem that the, the tyranny of structure, structurelessness at a local level can be a real problem. We need to develop structures of accountability at the local level. And it's not clear what they're going to be, but we can experiment, right? If we see something's going wrong, we see the state is doing a bad job of this. We see the prison is doing a bad job. It means that we need to try out new things and we need to try them out at the local level, not at the national level. If crime goes up by a factor of like X percent, would you consider that a failed experiment? So, yeah. Is there some value of X such that like if crime went up by that much under such an experiment, you'd consider it failed? Yeah. So I, I think uh, aggregating data at the sort of national level or even city level um, often obscures what's actually happening, right? Why? Because it, there are all sorts of different things that count as crime. Okay. So let's forget about every crime except homicide because every homicide leaves a body and it's the most reliable, maybe the only truly reliable crime metric because people don't often get rid of body. Like we usually know how many homicides there are because it leaves evidence. If homicide were to go up, is there some value of X where if it goes up by that much, that percent, you would consider like any given local experiment to be failed? You don't have to come up with a number. I'm just saying, is is that, would that be a, an evidence of failure if it spiked by some unacceptable amount? Yeah, so here, here I, I think I agree with the, the Telluride philosophy that things fail and we try again and we try better and they might fail again, but we try again and we try better because we know what doesn't work. You're saying yes, like that, that would be a possible dimension of failure. Yeah. I mean, if people are getting harmed and more, more and more people are getting harmed, something's going wrong. We have to try something new. What went wrong in 2020 when we had the single greatest year over year increase in homicide in American history, according to Pew and various. Would you say that a failed experiment in something? Right. Yeah, so, I mean, these are. Must it not have been? These are very, I mean, everything circa 2020 is complicated by economic issues, by pandemic, by all sorts of reconfigurations in the American landscape. No, but it, it didn't happen in, a, pandemic happened in the whole world. Homicide increase happened in America. Right. I mean, the number of guns in the U.S. I mean, there are all sorts of factors. Uh, sort of culture of violence in the U.S. is different from other places in the world. I think one country had riots in every city and a racial reckoning about police. And that's, that's like by far the most obvious cause of, of the um, subsequent rise in homicide, in my view. But that, maybe that's a debate for another, another time. You know, because we had guns the year before we had, you know, and it's mostly illegal guns, not Second Amendment guns that are doing the, the harm. But I mean, I, I guess my, my what I'm getting at is like, but what, what metrics would you be looking at for success in these like transformative justice experiments? What what are you looking to? That's like this community did it right because look at what happened. What is that? Right. Yeah. So uh, if uh, community members feel safer, if they, they feel as if they are being they're less likely to be harmed. And if they feel as if when they have been harmed, they're happy with the outcome, right? If you look at surveys of crime victims now, many of them are not happy with the outcomes when the, when the perpetrator goes to prison. They don't think longer prison sentences are a good, a good idea, right? So, I mean, I think these sorts of metrics of, you know, how, how does, uh, are, are those who, who sur survived forms of harm you know, satisfied with, with the, the outcome and with this reweaving of the, the, the fabric of their community? Those seem important to look at. So what role do the police play in this vision? Do the police still exist as they do today or are they gone or is it, how do you view that? I'm not a policy person, but it does seem like we're at an important uh, important moment where uh, mental health professionals are, are being recognized for the important role that they play in uh, in communities where you know, 
we're wondering, do you really need a police person to be directing traffic, right? Could there be other sorts of professionals that could be directing traffic? You know, uh, what, what are the, if we, we've been fostering a culture of violence among the, the police, how can we sort of narrow the, the role of police such that others who are, are better fit for you know, other professionals who are better fit for, for the jobs we need them to do can, can be assigned to those roles. So uh, you would say leave the police intact, but have them do the work that they're best at. So like not directing traffic, anything else? I think we're at a moment of scaling down. When there are mental health crises, you don't need a police officer. You need a mental health counselor, right? It, it, well, it depends if the, uh, if the person having a mental health crisis, if violence, the potential of, of violence is part of, um, part of their mental health complex. And in, in many cases, People, the people calling 911 are their own mothers who know their mental illness better than any uh, mental health professional and know, have been negotiating it for years um, and know, generally know how to calm them down when they're having an episode better than anyone because it's like unique to each person often. And the fact that they've called 911 is sometimes a result of the fact that like, I can't handle this one and I'm scared, right? How is a mental health professional with no, with no um, physical skills in terms of how to protect yourself, how to subdue someone while keeping them safe, going to necessarily be the default in that situation. I don't necessarily see how that is an improvement. My own view would be that what what you want in that moment is someone who is extremely skilled physically, who knows how to subdue somebody without harming them, right? It's like the paradigm is like a jujitsu black belt because jujitsu is all about how to like restrain someone without necessarily injuring them at all. And I've talked to at least one cop on my podcast who was a black belt in jujitsu and talked about the number of times he never had had to go to his gun because he had such physical skills that he wasn't afraid. If someone threw a punch at him, if someone came at him, he knew how to how to deal with it in a way that didn't harm him or them. 99% of cops don't have that level of skill. So what you want is someone with that kind of skill. And you're not, that's not the skill of a therapist. Like we're not talking about a therapist. Yes, I agree. These are really uh, complex and tragic situations. Mental health, mental health professionals. Sorry. Yeah, these are really complex and tragic situations where families are, are grappling with those they love who have the potential to, to harm others. And if there's someone you love, you want the situation to de-escalate, right? You, you, you don't want the situation to get worse and worse. So, you know, the, the tool that we need for that job is someone who knows how to de-escalate the situation, right? Maybe there are well-trained police officers who know how to de-escalate that situation. It seems like given the culture of policing in the U.S. today, it's unlikely the case. It may be the case that, you know, you want a mental health professional in the lead supported by, you know, others who, you know, have other skills that could be useful. But, you know, if the focus is on de-escalating, is on sort of cooling down the situation rather than heating it up, then I think we really need to think carefully about what's what are the professionals who should be in the lead in that situation. I agree de-escalation should be the priority. The problem is that de-escalation is not always possible, in my view. I, I think, I mean, I, I'll use an example given to me by former uh, head of Baltimore PD, Anthony Barksdale, he said he got a mental health call and um, it was from the mother and he was having an episode, probably schizophrenia, and he was able to calm the guy down. He thought, okay, good. This is going to be fine. We're going to get him to the, put him in the cop car, get him to the hospital, get him the health help he needs. And all was going well until suddenly in the boy's mind, he became a dragon and now he's fighting the dragon, right? 
how do you how do you deescalate in that in that situation? What you're what you're dealing with is a mental illness that there is no pat formula. There's not even a sophisticated formula one can learn in school to necessarily switch somebody off in, in that scenario, right? Like at the end of the day, you have to be able to protect the people around that person because the person is not is is having a break from reality, right? I I am very skeptical of the notion that there is this skill. There is such a thing as being good at de-escalating, but it only goes so far, right? Like there's no such thing as as like the Jedi mind thing where it's like you're so good at de-escalating that you can just reliably 99% go into a situation and get two people to stop fighting. I, like have you ever tried to stop two people fighting? It's it can, if they want to fight, it's pretty difficult even if you know them, right? Like and and if you don't know them, if you're so like a mental health professional, oh, I studied how to stop fights for 4 years, it's like, okay, I'm sure you're better at it than average. I'm sure you're quite good at it. But the problem is the skill naturally maxes out at a certain level. And then you have to be able to, I mean, I often think of like the the mental health thing as, you know, we send the first mental health, you know, person to, to a mental health call. And there, there are some success stories until there's the time that uh, the mental health person gets beaten to a pulp. And then we start and then we say, okay, well, we're going to give you guys pepper sprays. And then slowly one step, step by step, we end up reinventing the cops. At least that's one plausible outcome, I think. Yeah, I think that's a, a real worry and one that we have to be careful uh, about, right? That we uh, come up with alternatives to uh, cultures of violence in, in, uh, in the police, uh, and then they start to look like the cultures of violence in police. That's a, a real worry. But we also need to tolerate experimentation. We need to be okay being frustrated with, with some things that aren't working perfectly. When we see we have a, a system that's not working well, uh, it's going to take some time to figure out what, what works better, and, and there will be some mistakes along the way, and we, we need to collectively tolerate that. On the, on the question of the, your sort of schizophrenic in the police car example, I agree these are these can be very challenging situations. And, uh, you know, I have no expertise in, in psychiatry. I know there are mental hospitals where there are a lot of schizophrenics and they they have ways of, they're used to dealing with these sorts of extreme situations without calling the police into the into the. Well, into they the have, I mean, they, they have chemicals that sedate you. Right. So there are a range of. Uh, uh, so is that the suggestion to have? I mean, that's. Yeah, I think the thought is that there are a, a world of professionals who every day deal with uh, folks in mental health crises who deal with schizophrenics. And you know, that's a skill set that we ought to take advantage of and uh, that we ought to bring into sites of, of crisis, particularly among poor and black folks who, uh, you know, uh, are often uh, not on the, not uh, getting the mental health services that they, they need. Okay, Vincent. Um, I think that brings me to the end, end of my questioning, end of my, uh, my grilling. You've been a great sport. And can you please tell my audience where to follow your work? Your, if you have one, Twitter handle, website, and, and book, they can find you. Yeah, I'm, I'm very low tech. I'm not on Twitter, but uh, my, the book Black Dignity is uh, available from Yale University Press. All right, Vincent Lloyd, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.